1: Welcome to the live broadcast of Truth Jihad Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett, broadcasting from the studio in Saidiya, Morocco. Looking out over the back garden where the flock of sheep always goes by at the same time, although they've moved up to 5 p.m. instead of 6 p.m., but they always go by exactly on the hour, it seems like. And that's when I start this show, talking to the most interesting folks who are... Taking it to the man and telling some truth where the truth is usually unwelcome among the powerful. Tonight, we have a couple of folks who've gone up against powerful institutions and lived to tell the tale. In the second hour, Dr. E. Michael Jones comes on to talk about the hashtag ban the ADL campaign. E. Michael Jones has been going up against the ADL for quite some time. The ADL has a multi-billion dollar per year operating budget. And in many ways, it acts more like an organized crime syndicate than the self-proclaimed defenders of civil rights that they claim they are. So we'll, we'll be talking to Dr. Jones about that. He's one of the world's great experts on the ADL and certainly one of their big-time antagonists. In the first hour, Dr. Merrill Nass is taking it to the WHO, which is, if anything, probably is bigger and more powerful than the ADL on a global stage anyway. Dr. Merrill Nass is well-known to my listeners. She's been on quite a bit. She started coming on back in the very early days of COVID. Her first appearance was revealing the cover-up around COVID origins. And so she was way ahead of her time on that. People who listen to this show got to hear the uh, truth about that <laughs> ridiculous, absurd, and insane story uh, long before the rest of the world started to catch up. Dr. Merrill Nass has been through all sorts of craziness ever since then. They uh, went after her license, and her, her final appearance, apparently, at the licensing board is coming up next week. Likewise, uh, next week we're having a uh, – the U.N. is rolling out its PPPR, Pandemic Prevention Preparedness Response Program, which is coordinated with the WHO-proposed pandemic treaty, and there's a big protest against both of those on Saturday, September 23rd. So Merrill is really busy. And it's just great that she's able to take time to come on the show. So, hey, thank you, Meryl Nass. It's great to have you.
0: Hi, Kevin. Great to be back.
1: Yeah, yeah. Boy, you've you've been one of my favorite regular guests ever since I got you on, uh, what was it, like about a couple of months after the pandemic started. And you've been a voice of sanity for so many of us since then. And they've really come after you with all guns blazing, Uh, I I don't even know where to start on that, but I, I guess we could start with a licensing board case. Uh, so could you just very concisely remind our listeners uh, what they're trying to do and then uh, fill us in about what's happening next Tuesday?
0: Sure. So um, 20 months ago, my medical license was immediately suspended because I was a danger to the people of Maine because I was spreading misinformation and prescribing ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine to COVID patients. Um, the board subsequently learned that we have a First Amendment and we also have some FDA regulations and therefore all of those things are perfectly legal. And so they then uh, had, had uh, subpoenaed charts of three patients and created new charges against me that I had not treated the patients correctly. They didn't interview any of the patients, all of whom were per- perfectly satisfied with my care and, and praised it. Um, they have They've had a hearing now, and we're about to go to day seven, which will be the final day on Tuesday. And in that case, each lawyer submits written closing arguments and then makes an oral statement to the board, and then the board will vote how they want to handle me. Um, I anticipate that even though none of the charges they've made against me, you know, of any kind, whether my care was inappropriate, delayed, or anything else, they haven't substantiated, but they will make those claims again. They will try to punish me, and I don't think they will be – I don't think they will choose to revoke my medical license because my attorneys filed a lawsuit against the board – for a malicious prosecution. And now all the board members are facing that. So they will try to handle me, they will try to give me some sort of wrist slap, but if they punish me too severely, it will, you know, go back on them when they have to face the music with my lawsuit. So anyway, we'll see what happens on Tuesday. Stay tuned. It will be broadcast by Children's Health Defense um, and probably by the Epoch Times, which has broadcast the first six days of my hearing as well.
1: Wow. Yeah. It's, it's real, real life, uh, uh theater with, uh, with heroism and villainy. It's, you, you know, you've actually managed to make lemons out of lemonade here <laughs> and, and take a crazy situation and turn it back against these lunatics who went after you. I, I find it bizarre that, you know, well, I, I find so many things bizarre about this. You know, what one of, the, one of the interesting things though, is that what they're trying to impose on you is a little bit like what the WHO is trying to impose on the entire world. That is a one-size-fits-all, cookie-cutter approach to medicine, where you know, now they're, they're claiming that you did the wrong treatment protocol for the, your three patients. The implication would be that every single one of your patients has to get precisely the same kind of protocol, and the, the WHO seems to be pushing through this pandemic treaty to try to make sure that every country on earth makes sure that every person on earth gets exactly the same protocol. I always thought medicine was supposed to be about doctors looking at their patients, listening to their patients, understanding that people need different kinds of treatment and treating each patient individually. But apparently that's not uh, acceptable anymore.
0: Yeah. So what the doctors haven't figured out yet is that if they keep going along with the government's plans, there won't be any need for doctors because the whole purpose of doctors is to individualize the treatment. So um, I-, I wonder how long it's going to take them to understand that. But you're absolutely right. The WHO wants to um, in- enforce on every country whatever protocol it chooses for any pandemic or public health emergency and then Everyone in that nation is to receive only that treatment, and the WHO can prohibit other treatments. At least that is what is specified in the current version of the International Health Regulation amendments, which will be voted on by the WHO members in May.
1: Well, it sounds like the entire world could get by with only one physician, a Chat GPI MD.
0: <laughs> well, that, that you're exactly right. And, in fact, Tedros Adnam Ghebreyesus is not a physician. He has a Ph.D. in public health, and he's the one who will be charged with making these final decisions.
1: Wow. So uh, let's, let's get into that uh, WHO treaty because there's uh, the U.N. event on Wednesday, and then there's the protest at U.N. headquarters this coming Saturday, September 23rd. And the, there seems to be a controversy, or maybe a false controversy, sort of like that false controversy about the magic bullet and the JFK assassination. There's no controversy, there's no controversy about the assassination. We all know that the CIA killed the president. But, uh, the false controversy here seems to be that the mainstream media insists that this WHO treaty is there's no enforcement mechanism it won't actually supersede national sovereignty in any way, and all the people who say that it will like like you and the children 's health defense and a long list of other experts uh, are all spreading misinformation that 's what they say however, um, the reality of it seems to be that it is a binding treaty, and in the law of nation each nation state uh, at least most of them i know the u s has a law saying that a binding treaty is the law of the land. And so the enforcement mechanism is that by U.S. law, the U.S. is prescribed uh, to enforce the uh, treaty, the binding treaty provisions. So I'm confused about how the mainstream can keep telling us that this is totally non-binding and will not interfere with different countries' sovereign response to future pandemics in any way, shape, or form.
0: Yeah, so um, the WHO staff are working very hard to try to create completely confusing language so that they can make the claim that um, they're not usurping sovereignty while they do that. So what, the, what they say is absolutely the, the proposed pandemic treaty, as well as these proposed amendments to the current international health regulations, are both to be binding. They also require that the nations be monitored to show that they are, in fact, adhering to the provisions of these treaties, and they want accountability. So we don't know what the accountability is, but the uh, documents state that each country has to have a focal point, and the focal point is to report back to the WHO on what the country is doing, how they are carrying out the orders of the WHO uh, Bureau, and... Um, Nobody yet is saying what the punishments might be if you don't carry out these provisions. However, the latest version of the proposed treaty claims, states that there will be new committees formed, a conference of the parties and a new bureau within the WHO, and these will be determined after everybody signs the treaty. So, basically, nations are will be asked to sign a treaty, if it looks like the current version, in which many of the provisions will be left up to committees of the future to decide. So, you're committing your nation to future provisions when you don't know what they are. And those future provisions are going to be the ones <laughs> that, that probably define the punishments and define in more detail the requirements that nations uh, we'll have to adhere to.
1: Okay, so to translate this into the language of sort of everyday reality and the situations that we might all actually have to face in the future—hopefully uh, not—but uh, would this treaty make it any more likely that there will be some sort of international digital vaccine passport that different countries would all be able to read uh, in the in the COVID pandemic? I do understand that there were a fair number of people who got hold of these uh, vaccination cards and filled them out. Um, I actually filled out a parody vaccination card. So it was obviously a joke. And so if, you know, I, I, if I were ever to show that to get into a restaurant or something like that, it would be purely as a joke. In any case, a lot of people were able to uh, avoid the uh, most restrictive aspects of some of the COVID rules through that kind of means because there wasn't some sort of foolproof digital passport that they could zap and discover your vaccination status and then uh, punish you accordingly. And I'm wondering whether this WHO treaty could, whether that would increase the likelihood that there would be uh, a more quote-unquote effective, in other words, oppressive mechanism for uh, keeping track of people's vaccination status and punishing them if it wasn't what the various uh, authorities thought it should be.
0: Yeah. So, so there are three main documents to these two for the WHO, the new pandemic treaty that's being proposed and um, a whole lot of amendments to the international health regulations. And then the UN is putting out a proposal that is going to be basically accepted next Wednesday um, through a silence, what they term a silence procedure, which means if you have any complaints about it, state them ahead of time, because, you know, we may be on Zoom, and we're just going to assume everybody agrees silently with it. And so these documents all um, talk about electronic health data. They talk about the Possibility of health passports. They know that these digital IDs and health passports are very, very controversial. So they don't, none of the documents say we're going to impose this on everybody in the world, but they have opened the door to doing that. And let me emphasize again, if countries sign on to these documents, they will be signing on to provisions to be created and negotiated in the future or not even negotiated, they will have already, nations will have said, we agree with allowing these future committees to determine what the rules will be. So most of the the egregious rules are not going to be acknowledged.
1: So, sounds like week. there's a lot or, lot of room for... Yes, lot
0: of, a lot of room for bad provisions to be added. And let me just add that, This business of signing up to future provisions that you know nothing about is not that new. The WHO and the U.S. government have been doing this for at least 20 years. They started out with the WHO saying to nations, look, we're going to have pandemics in the future. We've got vaccine companies that want to make vaccines for them, but they can't do it unless you tell them ahead of time you're actually going to buy those vaccines because then they can create the facilities necessary. But if you don't sign up and tell them you're going to buy their vaccines for whenever the WHO declares a future pandemic, you'll not you'll be at the back of the line when it happens. And they got many, many countries to sign up for this around 2004, and then in 2009, when the WHO declared a pandemic level six, many nations were obligated to spend billions of dollars buying vaccines for what turned out to be a pandemic that was less severe than a normal flu year. It was a very mild, if you even want to call it a pandemic, but nations were obligated to buy vaccines that were made very rapidly, and part of that obligation was no liability to the manufacturers. And so, for example, now it's 14 years since the 2009 flu and the vaccines becoming available. And the UK, for example, is still litigating with people who became very ill as a result of or died as a result of taking those rapidly produced vaccines. So the nations were, were left holding the bag for liability. That is the plan so the the treaty document, although it doesn't specify all the details, requires that nations manage liability for these future vaccines for our future pandemics through the WHO and says that it, the nations need to follow existing strategies, the existing um, situations for how nations are managing their their vaccine liability. And in the United States, what we do for pandemics is we have the PrEP Act. And so, again, there's no liability for the manufacturers. There's a small fund set up to compensate victims. And in the U.S., you have a one-year statute of limitations. So if you haven't figured out that your injury is due to your COVID vaccine and you haven't filed an application for benefits within 12 months, you're out. In, in fact, over 10,000 people have filed, about 11,000 filed asking for benefits for a COVID in- vaccine injury. Only four have been compensated, and the total amount of money they've received for these four is something like six or seven, thousand dollars. So on average, they're getting less than $2,000 dollars apiece for you know significant severe injuries. The rest are either have been told they don't qualify or they're waiting in line to have their case adjudicated. The, the upshot of all that is that if you are seriously injured or die from a pandemic vaccine injury, don't expect to get anything from your nation or from the manufacturer. You will be on your own.
1: So this treaty is sort of imposing a, uh, a, a one-size-fits-all model on the world in which these big corporations are given a kind of blanket immunity to operate all over the world and make huge piles of money. I wonder if the way it's being sold is some kind of internationalist thing that is, you know, the world is working together and cooperating and so on. I wonder if if that's entirely true. I mean, is is this really a truly international globalist kind of thing or is it that the most powerful countries and the corporations that rule them are using this to impose their power globally. So it's really more of an imperialist thing than a kind of global government thing.
0: Um, I think, um, you know, fascism, totalitarianism, um, allows for those two things to, jo- to be joined. So I think that the richest people in the world are not nationalists. They are globalists. I mean, we know that, for instance, David Rockefeller believed in one world government, that that was the only way to assure peace and to have, you know, a situation where corporations could do business without interference. Um And when corporations and governments blend together, you know, we think that's <clears throat> the definition of fascism, although there are several definitions. So I think what we've got is, you know, Rich people have basically figured out ways to get their own candidates to run governments, both at the administrative level and at, at the po- politician, top politician level, by using the World Economic Forum and the young global leaders and other mechanisms, other either secret societies like Skull and Bones, you know, has managed to fill most of the secretaries of state of the United States for something like a hundred years. So the organizations exist that work in conjunction with very large corporations, very rich people and governments to bring forth commonly determined policies. And so I, I, you know, I think globalism and imperialism and wealth are are becoming all, all one thing.
1: You may be onto something there, Merrill. Uh, It it occurs to me that it seems that most of the world's politically active, super-rich people, and and that's how uh, Peter Dale Scott defined the deep state, actually, was as the politically active, super-rich, that probably the majority of them uh, support neoliberalism. And to the extent that they're loyal to any particular project, it would be to imposing American-style neoliberalism on the entire world. And that's why they hate countries that... Don't go along with that. Like when Putin reigns in the Russian oligarchs, he becomes the enemy. When Iran doesn't let its oligarchs run their country, uh, they become the enemy. When the Chinese Communist Party will not let Chinese oligarchs uh, in cahoots with Western oligarchs run their country, they become the enemy. So that's one of the projects of the politically active super-rich. The other, it occurs to me, is the state of Israel. There's no other country in the world that commands the fanatical ultra nationalist support among billionaires that Israel does. You know, whether it's con- it's billionaire uh, arch criminals like Meyer Lansky who was loyal to Israel and shook down the entire western hemisphere organized crime syndicate to give money to Israel, uh or you know whether it's the mega group which created Jeffrey Epstein to collect dirt on top American leaders so that Israel could blackmail them. You know, 40% of America's richest people are uh, ethnically Jewish and unlike the normal American Jewish population they are all all the billion Jewish billionaires virtually all Jewish billionaires are fanatically loyal to the state of Israel and active in these kinds of uh, mega-type projects where they're basically volunteers for the Israeli Mossad so it occurs to me that li- these are really the two projects of the super rich one is uh, imposing American-style neoliberalism so that rich oligarchs can rule everywhere without interference by pesky nationalist governments. And then secondly, uh, pushing Israel as the one exception to this, the one super-powerful nationalist government that has the support of a huge percentage of the world's super-rich. And you put those two things together, Merrill, and what you can imagine coming happening in the future is a kind of world government based in Jerusalem
0: um am i am
1: i am I getting into conspiracy theories here
0: <laughs> well okay, so i 've got a few things to say first, I think you know neoliberalism is ne- neither neo or new and it 's not liberal and you know I think all these terms don't mean anything anymore what we 're living under is you know raw power and imperialism with a progressively smaller number of people on top calling the shots and trying to take over the Resources, the money, you know, and everything else in the world. Um, and so you can call them, I mean, they're a conservative. What, I mean, there are lots of names, but they mean nothing. It's, it, this is a raw power grab and it's as old as the hills. Um, I would say that I am, uh, ethnic. I am Jewish. I am a hundred percent ethnically Jewish. There are loads of Jewish people who do not support Israeli policies, who are very unhappy with Israel you know, are are distraught that the um, Israeli government has, uh, you know, taken on many Nazi features. Um, and so I, although ma- there are many b- very bad people who are Jewish, there are many very good people who are Jewish. And I hope, you know, you won't, um, you'll be able to make that distinction, Kevin.
1: Absolutely, Meryl. You know, just as, you know, people from ethnic Jewish backgrounds are overrepresented in various uh, fields, many good, some bad, um, they're also overrepresented on my radio show. And it doesn't surprise me at all that you, like so many of my radio guests, are from a Jewish background. And, you know, my radio guests are, for the most part, selected uh, people who are challenging these corrupt power structures. So, yeah, I'm absolutely opposed to the people who think that there's something negative about Jewish ethnicity, and uh, and even, to, you know, I also, you know, get into these discussions with people who uh, critique Jewish ideology, like E. Michael Jones and Lauren Guyano, and I think that both of those guys have certain good points to make in their critiques. On the other hand, I think that they're a little bit tendentious, too, in missing some of the good sides of certain aspects of Jewish ideology, like the emphasis on education, for example. Critical thinking, and as Douglas Rushkoff come, has come on the show to say, uh, uh, you know, busting shibboleths and, uh, you know, dethroning sacred cows, um, iconoclastic thinking, right? So, mm-hmm. yeah, so I, I, I totally agree with you about that, but I still think we have to be honest about the fact that there is a kind of a, a tribalism that's been uh, mobilized within the Jewish community and, and most, you know, most destructively at the very top levels of wealth and power among these, you know, mega group types, uh, the, you know, the APAC types. That, sure. Uh, yeah. yeah. Sure. So I
0: think I, what I think is that um, this, you know, thirst for power has looked at all the nodes that can be taken over. And this Zionist, you know, Jewish node was a good one. You know, it was and so has been co-opted. And you've had you've had one terrible, you know, leader of Israel after another for a long time. You know, one criminal after another friends of Jeffrey Epstein, you know, I, I mean, this Netanyahu, you know, should be in jail. You know, he's been indicted, but he's managed to skate so far. Um, So how does that happen? That happens because people decided, you know, this was a country worth taking over, it was small, you know, may, it was probably a lot easier to take over than the United States, it had a good story, which was, you know, the, the place where Jews could finally be free of of pogroms. And um, so they have taken it over. It's, it, it'll be just like the WHO has been taken over, and the UN has been taken over.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, they're all useful. As you're taking over the world.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and, you know, there, there's a, in, in that power struggle among the, the ruthless, uh, you know, the, the power hungry people who are playing games with our world, uh, that's, you know, that's definitely a one big piece on the board, but I, I don't think it's, it's the whole piece. Uh, and, um, but I, I definitely, you know, I think that one of the, the, uh, reasons that so many people uh, are, you know, overreacting in a direction of you know, starting to kind of take blanket approaches to Jewish people in general uh, is is partly because of the overreaction of groups like the ADL, which is what you know Mike Jones is going yes. to talk about in a second. Absolutely, hour. Yeah.
0: absolutely. I mean, they, I will, they piss I, people I also off. I want to mention <laughs> yeah. there's something you know, the Igbos in Nigeria were like the Jews of Nigeria, and so they were the ones who were massacred uh, uh, around 1970, late 1960s in Nigeria. And the um, what, what are they called? The, the Kurds are kind of like the Jews of, of that area of Turkey, Syria, uh, Iraq, and they, too, have been, you know, repeatedly massacred. So um, there's something interesting about these small groups that are very uh, successful, that have a lot of members of their tribe being very successful and then being massacred by the people around them who may be not quite so successful.
1: Yeah, the Armenians are another example. Yes. Yeah, I, uh-huh. I know some people from, uh, like, Azerbaijan and other parts of the former Soviet Union who are very prejudiced against Armenians, in part because they are known to be kind of tightly knit, uh, commercially successful. They have these kind of, you know, these long-distance trade networks based on, on their ethnicity. And then I also know people in places like Indonesia and Malaysia who say that ethnic Chinese people are, quote-unquote, the Jews of Asia which is sort of right. sometimes it's a compliment and sometimes it's not. Uh, so, yeah, it's it's interesting that, that, you know, people can be oppressed and mistreated not only because they're poor and powerless, but also sometimes because they become uh, richer and more powerful than their neighbors and uh, and then jealousy comes along. But on the other hand, Meryl, wouldn't you agree, though, that in the case of probably all of these groups, that there are two sides to these stories and that sometimes we're only told one side? And in particular, it does seem to me that today... In today's West, the, this history of conflict, uh, between Jews and non-Jews is told in such a way as to pretty much eliminate the point of view of the non-Jews who've been in conflict with Mm -hmm. Jews throughout history.
0: Yeah. Well, the history is told by the winners.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Right. And, uh, well, so who's going to tell the history of this, uh, pandemic bio warfare uh, craziness that we're going through now. And, you know, if we all die out because of the uh, continued development of it's probably nobody. Uh, so the, obviously this WHO pandemic treaty is not the way to go. What would be a better way to deal with the very real problem, not so much of pandemics, but of the biological weapons that are likely to be the cause of any significant pandemics, and including the COVID pandemic?
0: I think people need to acknowledge that the Science and technology has gotten away from us, um, you know, and this really we knew this uh, with the nuclear, you know, with the atomic bomb in 1945, that we have weapons that can destroy the world. And now it's not just nuclear, but it's also biologic. And we have to we have to shut them down. We have to get rid of them. We have to somehow find a way to do that, and it better not be with a world government because then the the leader, the government, is going to have them, but nobody else will. And I think that is the point of of this treaty, um, this pandemic treaty, where um, actually gain-of-function experiments are incentivized. Nations are required to search for potential pandemic pathogens and then share them with other nations and with the WHO. What that means to me is, you know, the governments will have all these weapons and the people will be at their mercy. Um, We have to get rid of gain of function. Gain of function is simply a euphemism for biological warfare research, making, uh, you know, dangerous microorganisms either spread better or cause more disease. That's all it means. And um, they got rid of the term germ warfare and they got rid of the term biological warfare so they could use a euphemism and fool the public as to what it is. But the WHO treaty calls for more of it, and we all need less of it. Um, The United States has blocked – there is a biological weapons convention, a treaty that was supposed to ban biological weapons. The U.S. initiated it and signed it and ratified it. It's a 1972 treaty. Um, But then we blocked the provisions that would have made it work and stopped cheating. So now anybody can cheat, and we are one of the big cheaters. Um But it can be stopped, you know, if there's will. If there is people will, then there will be political will. If the public comes to understand what's really going on, we can stop this. We've got 51 Republican members of the House of Representatives who have co-signed a bill, H.R. 79, to defund the WHO and get out of the WHO for exactly this reason, because the WHO does want to take over sovereignty under the guise of dealing with pandemics. The WHO does want to give us orders. It does want more biological weapons to be identified and created. We need to get out. So 51 congressmen, we need it to be more, and we need we need Democrats to sign on. And the only way that's going to happen is if the people demand it. And they say no more of this and they don't allow our, you know, government officials to go along with the WHO and the UN who are in fact only responding to the people who own those organizations, many of whom are Americans. Ooh. So um it, it's a question, you know, people need to look around and say, what happened in this pandemic? We were, we were given a disease that was created in labs and, we were given a vaccine that was created in labs to make us even sicker. And we don't need this anymore. We don't want this anymore. Our governments are acting against us. And um, we've we got to change everything.
1: Well, if the next pandemic is, you know, a bioweapon that's a lot worse, which one would think it might very well be, you know, the COVID so two years could end up being like a walk in the park. And so, yeah, we need to find a way to address this. I agree with you that the WHO treaty is not the way to address it. Theoretically, you know, one would think that, okay, one way to deal with the problem of nationalistic competition to develop bioweapons for you know, for, for national security purposes would be sharing, right? All, if all of the bioweapon scientists are out there meeting at conferences and sharing and the, the WHO treaty is forcing them to share all their knowledge with each other, then that's that theoretically might be thought to make things better. but. I don't know, you know, I, uh, I read a book called Plague Wars by Mangold and Goldberg. It's a fairly establishment take on biological weapons and they describe conferences where bioweaponeers from different countries kind of get together to share their wares, hawk their wares, brag, maybe conceal certain things, but you know, they're all sort of, uh, you know, bragging and, and playing ego games with each other. And it's kind of terrifying that uh you know and and in some of these people they they all know each other, and they all know that so and so is working you know this is back thirty forty years ago, so and so is working with the South Africans and the Israelis to build these race specific biological weapons, and I think one guy actually got arrested for doing that and then trying to shop them to Libya or something like that mm-hmm. uh, so that that whole world is is the kind you know trying to fix that with a who treaty is obviously not going to work, but what would fix it though, given that you know, there is a bioweapons community, that there are very strong arguments that anything that could be used to kill a lot of the enemy is a uh, a potentially useful weapon. And if we don't build it, they will. So, you know, and and it's easily concealable. So, I mean, how do you put teeth in that original uh, bioweapons convention to actually roll back this?
0: Okay. So there's several things. First of all, you have challenge inspections, which means one nation can demand to go into someone else's facilities and look and see what's going on. And that already exists in the International Chemical Weapons Convention, which has 184, 185 signatories that have ratified it. But there's a a sort of a simpler way. The scientists won't work on these agents unless they have protection for themselves, unless you have a BSL-3 or a Biosafety Level 4 laboratory. Uh, so they don't catch these diseases, and so you could actually just get rid of those laboratories, not allow anyone to make them and uh it would so they couldn't reduce- be concealed um well if you if if for example there are there are things that are necessary, like a separate air handling system, so if you didn't allow anyone to build those separate air handling systems, it would be difficult and if you had the challenge inspection, so you could go look around. If there's any hint that anyone's doing it, I mean, you, you know, you may not be able to prevent things a hundred percent, but you can do a pretty good, I mean, there, we've used the challenge inspections with the chemical weapons convention and nobody's using chemical weapons now in the world, as far as we know. So that seems to be a good thing. You, um you also establish punishments. So you make people, you make these people afraid. So I'm a, you know, Someone's a biological scientist creating biological weapons. Well, if you say that there's a mandatory death penalty, that will work as a deterrent as well. Right now, there's no penalties. The treaty never added any penalties. There, there are no laws on the books. It's just like, with, like you could be a scientist making up fake data. There are no laws on the books in the United States that call that a crime. You can publish papers that are nonsense, and you'll never go to jail for it. The only things that can happen to you if you publish fake science is that you'll lose your NIH grants. You know, you'll lose government grants, but there's no provisions for going to jail or for paying other fines apart from losing your grant money. And People don't and get caught
1: a lot of times.
0: If you, and, and very few people get caught. And so and you have to. So the only three things that are considered a problem, a legal problem for you are um, uh, plagiarism fabrication and uh, one other it starts with an f um uh, i've forgotten what it's what that word is okay. but basically yeah if they can catch you plagiarizing you can lose your grants and if you if you fake the 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 uh, graphics in your report if that can be shown you can lose your grants you know or if you report on subjects that don't exist and someone can prove that you don't have you never did those experiments you can lose your grant but that's about it if you just misinterpret your results or or lie about the results but you didn't fake your graphs and you didn't um plagiarize anyone you know you're not going to be found out there will be no punishment for you almost certainly so scientists you know and doctors have basically had a very easy time they've been they work in an arena where no one's looking over their shoulder to make sure they do things correctly and that, that can change so we can change.
1: who will guard the guardians we we need some guardian guarders to keep an eye on the people developing biological weapons that seems like a no-brainer to me
0: <laughs> yes exactly exactly yeah. you need you need an international organization that, you know, where people you – know, the people looking at us in the U.S. Are from, are from Russia, right? The people looking at the Russians are from here. So we actually care about finding the cheating.
1: Well, as I recall in, in the book Plague Wars, there are actually descriptions of the uh, U.S. inspections in Russia. There there were a couple of cases, I think, uh, after the uh, treaty was signed – what was it, 1972 or something – uh, mm-hmm. So there were a couple of cases where there were actual inspections. And,
0: yes, there were inspections yeah. uh, between Russia, the U.K., and the U.S., and it was sort of outside the treaty. I also have to mention, Kevin, one of the chapters in that book is about me yeah, and my work identifying the um, use of anthrax in Rhodesia as a biological weapon to kill and, and maim black people during the Rhodesian Civil War, which was a race war of white against
1: black. And that, and that's actually one of the better chapters. Some of the chapters in that book strike me as possibly a little bit biased. I mean, the way that they describe the U.S. inspections in, in Russia, where the, the evil Russians are hiding horrific things from the poor, innocent, naive Americans, uh, versus the Russian inspections in America, where these crazy, highly suspicious Russians are imagining all kinds of terrible things that they think the Americans must be doing, which the Americans are certainly not doing. I mean, some those chapters (laughs) struck me as less than completely trustworthy. But the chapter on your work seemed very, very good. I mean, it basically covered the territory. And it's interesting, you're now so well known for your um, critique of the standard COVID policies that it seems – that some of you know your, your this seminal work you did on this one case where the use of biological weapons was actually proven and written about in peer reviewed literature uh, is a lot of the uh, probably even my list some of my listeners here don't even know about that, so maybe we should quickly remind them a little more about that um, so so you're saying that that racist uh, white Rhodesians were using biological weapons against their uh, black freedom-fighting enemies. I'm surprised that the media, which is so anti-racist, isn't uh, publicizing this more.
0: Well, it happened um, in 1978 to 1981. So it was a long time ago. I published my paper uh, about it in 1992. So it – no, it's a long time ago. But this is the only um, – in the in the open literature, the only description, the only investigation of an epidemic by using scientific methods that showed it was, in fact, due to – it couldn't have been the natural pandemic or epidemic. It was actually called an epizootic because anthrax spreads from animals to people. But in this case, it wasn't really an epizootic. It was spread through spores that were released by humans. <laughs> Excuse me. But um yeah, I think you're right. If the media were actually interested in this issue of biological warfare, it's a very interesting place to start to acknowledge that in fact biological weapons have been used and, and it's been proven that they were used. And they were used during a war to help the whites who were in control of the government of, of Rhodesia. So Rhodesia had been a territory of Britain, a colony. And when the colonizer nations were giving up their African colonies. The small white minority wanted to maintain control of Rhodesia rather than turn over power to the black majority, which is what was happening in the other colonies. And so um, in 1965, they tried to seize power and there was this very sort of slow moving war, a series of skirmishes between whites and blacks over the next 15 years. And uh, finally, you know, the black majority took over. It was a very dirty war. There were chemical weapons used as well as biological weapons. There were multiple biological weapons used. Um, and uh, a lot of false flags of, you know, white people being killed actually by the white government and being blamed on blacks in order to stir up their population to fight harder and, and to support the war. Yeah. Uh, And there was food control. So things that we are seeing now where, you know, these governments and international organizations like the EU are saying that we have to get rid of cows. We have, you know, we have to do things that are going to reduce the food supply. That was exactly what was going on in Rhodesia. And cows cows were the main uh, beneficiary of those anthrax spores. So Innumerable cows, almost all belonging to the black population, died from anthrax. And then uh, humans, uh, several, a couple hundred humans that we know of died from butchering or eating the cows that had been affected. That this was an uh, it was a, what is a version of low intensity warfare designed to impoverish the blacks so they could not continue the war
1: well you know, the mainstream media could actually come up with really interesting stuff by doing relatively fair and balanced coverage of you you know they they could have easily covered your case in a you know by, by listening to the other side too but then also Uh, taking your arguments about things like ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine seriously, looking into them, and then also looking into your background in, in this, in biowarfare and your views on COVID as a bioweapon, and it would be really interesting stuff, but of course they'll never go there, which is I guess why we need to have truth-you-head radio. In any case, uh, how about this recent paper that's starting to get cited in the alternative media about the COVID variants being clearly made in a lab. It turns out this paper was published by a couple of, I believe, Chinese or Asian scientists who are, they have really impressive CVs. So this isn't like a marginal theory or anything like that. And what I'm hearing is that if that paper isn't total fraud, then it's nailed down this case airtight and that these uh, COVID Omicron variants are all artificially made. And what does that mean?
0: When Omicron showed up, There was no um, phylogenetic tree. There was no genomic tree from existing versions of COVID to show how Omicron was derived. Normally, you know, because nations are collecting, you know, millions of different uh, strains of of SARS-CoV-2 as it mutates, and looking at them and sequencing them, we ha- there are huge libraries of sequences of these things and collected all around the world. And so the the first Omicron in November of 2021 appeared out of nowhere. Didn't come from anything else. It had to have come from a lab. And now subsequent Omicrons, these more recent ones, also seem to have the same huge number of mutations. And it's not, and we don't see how they were derived from the existing versions so they are likely to have come out of a lab as well I haven't looked at the the details of of any of this recently because I've been working on other things so I can't really comment and support you know I don't know the details but it's we know that the first SARS-CoV-2 came from nowhere you know nobody has identified anything similar in any animals or humans so it came from a lab. Well, why aren't many, you know, these are easy. These coronaviruses, apparently the NIAID was spending hundreds of millions of dollars on researching them because they were easy to uh, work on and create mutations and build coronaviruses, which had a variety of features. So yeah, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if, if the, all of these different mu- current mutations came from labs. It wouldn't surprise me Either, though, if they they were naturally derived, because these things continually mutate. And even when we add bad features to them, as was done with SARS-CoV-2 initially, which had a number, you know, probably about 10 different features that I think were genetically engineered in to make them a path, a very bad pathogen, they quickly mutated and became less severe over just, if you know, weeks to months. So... Whatever. Um, then we also have come up with this information about the vaccines and that the vaccines, at least the Pfizer vaccines that have been looked at by Kevin McKernan and a few others, have a great deal of double-stranded DNA plasmids that code for the same thing as the messenger RNA and that were originally thought to have been in the vaccine due to sloppy manufacturing because they're necessary to create the messenger RNA. But then those plasmids at rates at least 10 times higher than would be allowed by the regulators, um, in conjunction with SV40 um, proteins that were never disclosed to be in the vaccines but have been found to be, provide a method by which the DNA can get into the nucleus of the cell and potentially cause mutations At a fairly high rate. I mean, the mutations are probably going to be random, but the chance of double-stranded DNA now getting into the nucleus of cells once that cell has been infected by what was in the um, vaccines, the COVID, the early COVID vaccines, we don't know what's in the later ones. There's a new one that just came out this week. Um, You know, the third iteration of COVID vaccines has been licensed for adults by Uh, from Moderna and Pfizer, licensed by the FDA and rolled out yesterday, um, rather rolled out on Tuesday. And on Tuesday, CDC said it'll take 48 hours till they get into um, circulation. So the newest iteration, almost completely untested in human beings of COVID vaccines is available now. And does it contain plasmids with DNA? Does it contain viral sequences that, you know, make mutation a likely event? We don't know what's in them. They weren't tested in humans. We really don't know anything about their side effects. We don't know what they're supposed to do. We don't know why the government keeps rolling them out when the disease is very, very mild. And probably, you know, 90 percent of the people who wind up in hospital with COVID are in there for something else. So we don't know what's going on, but it seems like the you know, the the, gov- the U.S. government, at a minimum, um, is, again, working against the people to give us some sort of garbage medical product <clears throat> that has no business <coughs> being on the market because it didn't go through proper regulatory procedures. And the FDA has just rushed it through. Uh, as an amendment rather than as a new vaccine even though it is a new vaccine they basically grandfathered it in with no regulation so nobody should take this product um and it makes you wonder what what's going on with all the other injectable products you know what what's in them if the fda has allowed this to be you know given out to the entire population what else are they allowing to get through and why why are these pro? Why are these horrible products being pushed out?
1: They're they're recommending it for everybody. Uh, I think over six months of age, which is really bizarre, because the younger people are, of course, they were at virtually no danger from COVID ever, even back when we had Delta variants and such that were worse. And now the official media and medical industry tell us that COVID is essentially over meaning that there's not any signal anymore in terms of excess deaths from any alleged pandemic. So it's over. And yet they are whipping out these emergency vaccines and giving them to people who would never have been in any danger, even during the worst of the pandemic. Uh, it is really puzzling. It makes you wonder what could this really be about? You know, if I were a crazy conspiracy theorist, I would wonder whether the gray aliens are trying to mess with human DNA by putting <coughs> in these uh, lipid nano whatevers that are going to mess with right. our, uh, our, our, our DNA.
0: <laughs> well, it, it makes no sense for anybody. It, it's, it's uh, horrible for children because they have no risk. No, essentially no, statistically no risk from COVID. You know, maybe one in a million children would die and we don't know what the, damages to people from getting these new vaccines because they weren't tested for safety. Um, but um, the thing is, once you get vaccinated with the two older versions, after a few weeks to months, you became more susceptible to actually coming down with COVID and in some cases coming down with other infections as well. So the any benefit you get from the vaccine is extremely brief. The net Effect of the vaccine, even at protecting you against COVID, is, is turns out to be negative by the time you know six or eight months rolls by. So it, it doesn't. There's no justification. There's no efficacy really. There's no net efficacy. There's a lot of questions, and we know that these vaccines have caused a great deal of injuries in young people as well as in adults. Although the the myocarditis, you know, is most common in the 12 to 40 year old age group and it happens in men and women it does happen in women also yeah no there's no there is absolutely no reason to get this shot and then you have to say whoa what what about the other shots what's happening there you know if the fda and the cdc are willing to give us to and to recommend and to push and to mandate these poisons why wouldn't they do it with the other shots? So I think we need to be really, really judicious about what we put into our bodies now, now that we can't trust our own health agencies.
1: Yeah, at this point it seems like the people lining up to get their boosters are really almost like superstitious people rushing out for an amulet that they've been told is going to protect them. But the slightest you know, little bit of research would tell you that this is not a good idea. But. Anyway, um, it's uh, it's a huge puzzle, and maybe at some point we'll be able to solve it and figure out why they're doing this, beyond the obvious making a lot of money at it, which might, of course, be the actual explanation. I don't know, uh, but that'll have to be in a future radio show because we hit the end of this one. Well, thank you, uh, Dr. Meryl Mass. I love talking with you, and I really admire your um, courage in standing up for uh, what's right and, uh, in doing the good fight over the years and you're, you're a lot better known now than you were when I first brought you on the show and, uh, and you deserve it. Let's, uh, let's hope things continue in that direction and you end up, uh, making a huge positive difference. So God bless you. Keep up the great work. This is Truth She Head Radio. I'm Kevin Barrett back in the next hour with another, uh, brave individual up against a powerful corrupt institution. Dr. E. Michael Jones takes on the Hashtag ban the ADL campaign.